Hi everybody, welcome back to Church Everywhere. Wherever you're tuning in from this week, we're so glad that you've chosen to join us today. I was asking God for some encouragement this week and he brought me to Hebrews 10.25. And this is what it says. Do not give up to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more until you see the day approaching. Church, it really has been a tough season that we've been going through in this time. And I can't wait till we get to be back in the same building again, where we can hear each other's voices, we can give each other hugs and high fives without any fear. But until that day comes, I remain thankful. I'm thankful for opportunities like this that we can still connect not giving up on meeting with each other. And I encourage you to do the same in the different ways that we're able to, through Zoom, through WhatsApp, through YouTube, through Facebook, all these different channels we have are ways that we can stay connected and not give up. So church, reach out to your friends, reach out to your families, and continue to do what God has called us to in this season. Coming up in this episode, Ollie and Claire sit down for a really cool conversation and share with us tips on how to pray when you don't know what to pray. Then later on, Pastor Andrew comes and continues the Red Letter Sermon series, sharing with us his teachings on Jesus' last words to his mother from the cross and what this teaches us about God's heart for family. Then at the very end of the video, there's a special announcement for everybody, so please do stay tuned all the way to the very end. Hi everyone, my name is Claire, I'm the prayer coordinator, and this is Oliver, he's the discipleship pastor. And today we'll be sharing with you some foundational ideas and practical tips on how to pray when you don't know what to pray. Prayer is a very foundational part of our relationship with God, and so it's very important to our spiritual growth. But we understand that right now with the environment and the crisis that are going on, it can be very difficult to be praying and knowing what to pray. Maybe you will feel like you are just speaking to the silent void. You've been praying the same things over and over and over again, and you don't see any change. Or worse still, it feels like it's just going in a downward spiral. So in those cases, Oliver, what ideas do you have to share with us today? Mm. Yeah, Claire and I actually, you know, we had a wonderful conversation about this, and we felt that there were a couple practical tips we can give, but also a few foundational ideas that we wanted to talk about. And, and one of those mm. was honesty. God does not need all of our prayers to be these perfect, pious, theologically wonderful, poetic uh, things. He wants our honesty. He cares for our honest prayers, us being able to come before Him with whatever's on our hearts, mm. whatever's going on in our minds, and being able to speak those out. And whether those prayers come out as, you know, lament and sorrow or anger, whether they're simple or whether they're long, or whether they are happy or hopeful or joyful, all of these are prayers that God loves when they're really coming from where we're at. Uh, the other one we were talking about was perseverance and, and like Claire said, it can often feel right now like we're praying into this big emptiness um, that we don't see things changing or we see things getting worse and in those times it can be really hard to persevere in prayer. At those times we start to ask, why am I doing this? Nothing's changing. And I want to encourage us uh, to keep pushing forward in prayer. Yes, uh, to persevere in prayer, asking for, for things to happen, um, but also to know that Prayer is not fundamentally about 
what we're going to see change because of our prayers. But it is about spending time with God, about coming before Him regularly, about keeping company with Him. And as we persevere in that, it's never wasted. Um, Claire, you also had a couple you wanted to share. Mm, yeah. And so oftentimes when we talk about prayer, we think of, you know, being in a quiet space or being in church with our hands closed or open, depending on our style, and our eyes closed and just saying things, right? But I would like to suggest that prayer is unlimited because prayer, the very foundational prayer is your relationship with God. And so it is unlimited to how you would communicate with God. Just like you would communicate and want to connect with your best friend, you don't limit it to just one thing. You would maybe hang out with your best friend or, or do this and do that or say, just be so honest, like Oliver said, you know, with your best friend. And so I would yeah, say that, you know, be just expanding your horizon on what you think prayer is. Um, it's really important and just focus on it being a connection with God and He is your closest friend. And then another thing is, when we talk about prayer, oftentimes we think of just praying, you know, saying things at God, just talking all the time. But actually another very important aspect is listening, to be listening to God in prayer. Yeah, and it can be really hard, especially right now, um, with a lot of people uh, being stuck at home, children being out of school, and there just being a lot to do, and, and there being a lot of noise and busyness mm. around. It can be hard to find that kind of space. I've been reminded lately of, of two different ways we can go about that issue. And one mm. of those is to uh, find time. The other one is almost making time to be with God. Um, and in finding time, I want actually to encourage us all to ask that question of what are moments where I can meet with God? What are moments where I'm alone, even if it's just for a little bit of time each day? Um, I've asked a group this before, and there was one person who stopped and thought, when I'm in the bathroom, I can pray and I can be with God and hear from when I'm in the bathroom because the kids can't bother me, like no one can come in, it's just me there before the Lord. And that might be a time for you. God, uh, again with honesty, He has no problem with where you come before Him in prayer and how you come before Him in prayer. Um, but it might be that or it might be, you know, walking to or from the shop or, or whatever it is. But there are even these little, little times where we can uh, make time for prayer. Yeah, that's really awesome, Oliver. And I think that totally touched on the point of like, prayer is unlimited, like we mm. said before. So I would say, get creative with prayer, you know? Um, it's not just words um, coming out of your mouth. That's not all prayer is. You know, you can draw, you can paint, you can journal, you can write a poem, you can sing songs, you can go on a hike or even be silent. If that's how you, you want to connect with God, you know, in that moment. And that's where you are at spiritually, you know, and if being silent is also your passion. Um, so the main point really is discover your passion and mm. out of your passion, actually create a prayer life out of that. Um, and, you know, you'll be surprised how God will reveal Himself when you do that through these different methods that you can try and it will actually expand your horizon of who God is. Another thing is there are so many great resources right now, you know, available across the world. And there have been so many prayers that have been written by Christians across the centuries. And there are prayer books that are actually available. For example, like this common book of prayer, and the value of vision, which is from the Puritans um, from ages ago. These are really great resources for you to pray when you don't know how to articulate the things that are in your heart. And also there are people who have um, posted prayer through YouTube online um, who pray very specific things as well. So when you don't know what to pray, you can actually go to search and search for prayers um, from Christians around the world and pray along with them. 
And also the prayer movements in the world, such as um, the 24-7 prayer movement and the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, um, they have a lot of great prayer resources online available for you to use as well. And in that same spirit, Claire and I actually wanted to end this time together uh, by sharing a prayer with you. Uh, it's uh, an older prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. It's often called the Serenity Prayer. Uh, and the text is going to come up on the screen in a moment. Uh, this prayer is often used in a lot of 12-step programs. Uh, and it's just this beautiful prayer in a wider sense uh, for helping us to give things up to God, to ask for His peace with what happens, to entrust things to Him, to take each day uh, as it comes. And so I'm going to read this for us. We're going to pray it together. And I just really want to invite you, if you're on your own, then you can take this moment to listen and pray or read it. Uh, and if you're with others, you might even want to take this time to uh, pray this prayer together as a group. Um, but this is the Serenity Prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with Him forever in the next. Amen. Our prayer team would love to pray with you. So if you have any prayer requests today, scan the QR code or click the link in the caption. Join one of our Zoom prayer rooms and someone on the prayer team would love to pray with you. It's been amazing to see the generosity from the community towards the church in this time. And we want to say a big, big thank you for that. Your financial contributions allow us to continue to minister to the people in this community, in the city and around the world. We want to encourage you to keep walking alongside your church in this way. There's a number of ways you can give. You can scan the QR codes that are appearing on your screen right now. You can set up a direct debit, which, which you haven't done so. We encourage you to do so. You can do an electronic bank transfer or you can go old school and send us in a check. However you want to give, we thank you again for your generosity. And for more information, please go to vinechurch.life giving. Our worship and production team have been working tirelessly to continue to lead us in worship each week. And this week is no different. So as they say in some videos, turn the sound on. Actually, turn it all the way up and let's join in and worship Jesus together. face in every sunrise 
And God, we, we thank you for, for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him for us, God. And, and that even when we are weak and even when we aren't worth it, you are worthy and your love covers our sin, it covers our insecurities, it covers our failures, it covers our fears, God, your perfect love, it covers and it casts it out, God. So we thank you for the cross, we thank you for your blood, we thank you that you've been revealed to us, God, and that we get the chance to respond to you, and in that response, we say, worthy are you, we say, you deserve it all, we say, highest praise to the King of Kings. Dear God, we pray today that you are exalted high above the heavens and raised to the highest seat in our hearts, Lord. And we give you glory for all of this. You know, we pray. Amen. This uh, photo album is one of maybe 20 or so that my parents have. They have a whole stack of them that basically traces almost four decades of our family history. And I absolutely love looking at these albums. I love journeying through what has happened to us as a family uh, since the 1970s. And uh, in here is captured for me much of what family is actually all about. It's about shared common experience and memory. In here are the holidays that we've taken. In here are the, are the homes that we used to live in and the places that we visited and the, the weddings that we've attended, the funerals that we've had to be at. And more than just the actual moments and experiences, what's also in here that fascinates me is the emotion of family. There's joy and laughter and discovery and happiness. And then there's moments of struggle and all of that has come together to create something that really is uh, the perfect picture of what family is all about, that we're bonded together by blood and love and that no matter what happens in life, whether the highs and lows, together we get through it because we're family. I've been thinking a lot about family this past week. Um, because it's been one of the hardest weeks that I've had to face for a while. Um, but back on, on Monday this week, we uh, had the first year anniversary of my father's passing. Uh, he passed away on the 23rd of March, 2019, after about a, a two-week battle with liver cancer. In fact, from diagnosis to death, it was only about two and a bit weeks, and he was only in hospital for a couple of days before he passed. 
you can imagine the, the suddenness of that for us as a family was incredibly hard uh, to face. And it's been a difficult week as I've had to sit in the pain of some of those memories. The thing I've been reflecting on the most actually is the last uh, night uh, that I sat with my father uh, in hospital. I actually sat with him for about five hours by his bedside as he was journeying from life into death. In one way, that was an incredible privilege uh, to be able to spend those final moments with my dad. Uh, but in another way, uh, it was incredibly painful. Uh, some of the memories that I have of my father in that time will be with me the rest of my life, and they're not easy memories uh, to sit in and to deal with. And this week, as I was reflecting on that time, I felt the pain uh, and the grief of, of that moment all over again. Uh, but the thing that, that actually uh, I look back on with joy uh, is what happened in the, in the very final moments of my dad's life. We were able to get the whole family uh, to gather around his bedside in that moment. In fact, there were three generations of gardeners around the bed uh, as, uh, as his breath became air and he, he passed from this life onto the next to be with the Lord. If I think back to that moment, um, I, I can't think of a better way for someone to, to die than to be surrounded by their loved ones. Surely that's all of our hope uh, in those final moments. And I, I remember distinctly us uh, standing around him uh, as that one family, uh, pouring our love and our emotion and our encouragement into him uh, and watching him in that moment pass to be with the Lord. It's uh, it's one of the things that I think I take with me as a great comfort, even in the grief 12 months on that I still have, that in those final moments, my dad saw nothing but love and family. The Gospels tell us something quite beautiful about the final moments of Jesus's life, that for him as well, in those final moments, he was also surrounded by family. In fact, the Gospel of John gives us the picture of uh, the family members that were there. His mother, Mary, was there in that moment, that Mary's sister was also present, that there was family and generations surrounding the cross, looking in and upon Jesus as he suffered so terribly in those final moments. It's quite incredible what Jesus does towards his family in that time. And I want to share that with us here uh, today. It's found in John uh, chapter 19, uh, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 25. Let me read this to us. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and also Mary Magdalene. Now, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and that's a, a reference to John, he said to his mother this, Dear woman, here is your son. And then to the disciple he said, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her to be in his home. In this Red Letters series, we, we've already noted uh, just this amazing thing that in the most painful, hurting moments of Jesus' life, that he actually uses that time to reach out in grace and love and compassion to the other that was around him. And we see him doing that right here in his dying final moments as well. He sees his mother there standing nearby, and he has this compassion for his mother, his biological mother standing there in the last moments of his life. And where he's feeling that excruciating pain, he reaches out and he desires to ensure that her future and her security is going to be taken care of. And he connects his mother with a disciple, John, and he brings them together. And in so doing, does something that is so revolutionary that I think in just reading the 
text like we've done just now, we kind of miss out actually all that Jesus was trying to do. But in that moment, Jesus sets up for us a radical new way to think about family. Now, to understand that, we have to actually understand a little bit about how Jesus uh, traveled with his family throughout his life in ministry. In fact, actually, Jesus has a fascinating relationship with his family. We know from the very beginning of Jesus' life that he actually had what could be sort of seen as a, a relatively standard traditional Jewish family, biological family unit. And they were bonded, like my family, through shared experiences together. And those experiences for Jesus and his family were pretty radical and unusual. I mean, we have the miraculous birth, of course. And then straight after that, we have Mary and Joseph taking Jesus and the rest of the family uh, to Egypt to flee Herod and everything that Herod was trying to do in the genocide of that moment. And then through that shared bonding experience of, in Egypt, they then are able to come back to their hometown in Nazareth where Jesus grew up with his family. Jesus actually ends up being trained to take over the apprenticeship from his father as a carpenter. Uh, and you can get the sense of a, a strong bond between uh, Mary and Joseph, Jesus, and his wider brothers and sisters. But then something unusual happens uh, as Jesus begins his earthly ministry. In fact, there seems to be this kind of shift that happens straight away. One of the very first things Jesus does is preach his, his first ever live sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. And when he preaches that message, there's such an uproar about what he says that actually those in his own village and those of his own family want to actually kill him at that point. They think he's being blasphemous about God. And so they try to chase him out and throw him off the top of a hill, but Jesus manages to miraculously escape from from them and that whole process begins to set up this shift for Jesus. He almost moves away from his biological family at that point and then begins to create a new family. He begins to call disciples to him and creates new shared experiences with them. So much so that actually in the middle of Jesus' ministry, when his own biological family reach out towards him, he almost is rude in how he sort of shuns them. There's that great moment in the Gospels where his mother and his brothers appear in the crowds and try to fight their way uh, to get towards Jesus. And the disciples say, hey, don't you realize that your mother's outside? And Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, you want to know who my true mothers and brothers and sisters are, who my true family is? They're the ones that listen to my word and are obedient to it. And you add to this Jesus' teachings that marriage is only for this life and that in eternity we don't have marriage as a structure. You add to that the reality that Joseph, his father, is never mentioned again in the rest of the Gospels. And you begin to get this idea that maybe for Jesus, biological family is no longer important and if we stop for a moment and think about that, that should be kind of worrying for us in the Christian faith. Like, is Jesus trying to change the whole concept of, of what it means to have a mother and a brother and a father and a sister? And if so, what is he really trying to get at? I think in this last moment of Jesus' life, we actually begin to see the heart of what Jesus is trying to do. He takes his mother, Mary, and he takes the disciple he loves, John, and he brings them together. He says to Mary, here is your son, and I want you now to treat John like your son. And he says to John, this is now your mother, and you're to welcome her into your home. And the two of you now are going to form this new family. And here's what we need to see and know about that. 
they were not blood relatives. They, they were not associated as relatives at all. And so in this moment, Jesus is doing something that is so radical and so different. In fact, something that we don't see happen in Greek or Roman society or in Jewish society in that day at all. He's actually mandating adoption. He's actually bringing together two people of different bloodlines, and he's saying, you now are going to be family. He takes his own mother and he challenges her to broaden her concept of family way wider than she had ever done. And he takes the disciple John and he does the same thing. He challenges him to broaden his understanding of family way wider than he had ever done. I want you to really grasp the power and the subversiveness of what Jesus is doing here. You need to remember that he did have other options. He, he could have looked down from the cross on his biological mother and he could have said, hey, hey mother, uh, don't worry. Uh, I'm going to have James and my other brothers and sisters. They're going to take care of you. Don't worry. It's all going to be okay. He had the option of turning her towards the wider biological family, but Jesus doesn't do that. He instead creates this new family unit because what Jesus was trying to say from the cross in those final dying moments is this. He was saying, look, family is no longer in the future going to be defined just by bloodline. Now, because of my death and my resurrection, family is going to be defined by a new standard. And here's that standard, our common bond together in faith. And in doing this, Jesus begins a whole new revolution. In Greek and Roman culture at that time, in Jewish culture in that time, the biological family was the center of how society was structured. And here's now Jesus saying, we're going to look at our society different. And it's going to broaden your thinking about family to places that are even going to be uncomfortable for you, where blood is no longer central to it, but instead something else. The fact that we all can come around him in his death and resurrection. And now, even though we may be very different, different backgrounds, cultures, different faith perspectives at times, uh, different bloodlines, uh, different nationalities, different ways in which we express life, we now actually can come together and begin to look at each other and treat each other like family, call each other brothers and sisters because we have a shared common value in the life of Christ. That changes everything. And to help us understand that, I actually, I actually want to kind of map this out for us a little bit so that you can come to a, maybe a deeper understanding of why Jesus is doing that. So let me show us uh, one way in which I think uh, Jesus is really trying to explain this new concept of family to us. What we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is God's creation of all the world. And the way that that's written in the Hebrew is it comes across like a beautiful, poetic, intimate expression. It's almost like God is saying this creation is the place for his family. And we see at the end of Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of uh, Adam and Eve. Um, this is my Adam and Eve, by the way. Uh, and they're brought together and bonded together as one flesh in their marriage. And so we see the creation of the first biological family unit, if you will. 
And then in Genesis 3, we see what happens when Eve and Adam take that fruit from the tree. We see an absolute rupturing at that point of uh, that relationship. In fact, they begin to blame one another. They begin to hide from one another and from God, and they begin to argue amongst each other. And you see a rupturing of that family straight away. And that is shown even more dramatically in Genesis 4, uh, where you begin to see uh, what happens between uh, Cain and Abel. And of course, the murder that takes place as Cain kills his brother. So straight away, that biological family is immediately under attack uh, through the power and the brokenness of sin. And by the time you get to Genesis 11, what you see is all of humanity wanting to create uh, this kind of tower that is going to reach up into the heavens so that they can restore intimacy with God again, that desire to want to be drawn back in a family, if you will, with God. Uh, And then again, that desire in sin to try to get towards him in intimacy. And God comes down and he actually then at that point spreads out all of humanity. He confuses their language. He sends them all out. And what you see in the biblical story is that suddenly there are all these different people groups spread out all over the world, separated by language, confused by their cultures, and, and while culture is a beautiful thing, what you get the sense in the biblical story is now we've gone from being this intimate, created place of shalom from Genesis 1 and 2 to now a diverse, broken, separated, uh, if you will, even confused group of people broken out largely through the impact of sin. Here's what takes place Next, God in his redemptive desire desires to redeem this world back into family with him. He takes somebody from his own family, Jesus himself, and Jesus comes and God sends Jesus because he so loves the world right into the middle of all of the mess uh, that has become of God's good creation. And Jesus, through his life and his death, and his resurrection pays the price for that sin so that he in his blood and in his salvation that comes through that resurrection can then begin to restore everything that had been broken. What Jesus is doing is he's prophetically pointing forward to what happens through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit in his resurrection. We know actually in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit gets poured out that everybody begins to see the disciples speak in tongues, in languages, human languages, and it's the reversal of what we see happening in Babel. It's the coming together of all those groups that have been separated uh, through their languages. And then what you see begin to happen in the offer of salvation through Christ in the early church is that there's now a new spiritual family that we're welcomed into. And so all of these groups All of these people that have been separated at one point in the world now all get to come together again to become and form the very thing that God had always desired from the beginning. And that is to be one together, unified as humanity around a shared common faith in Christ. And as we do so, we begin to see family happen in the true way that I think God had always intended it to be. Not that the biological family is erased. God created the biological family before sin came into the equation. The biological family is a great and beautiful thing. 
But in Christ, we are now welcomed into a family that also comes along the biological family. It's our spiritual family. And in that family, we all have redemption. And no matter what has divided us before, we can find unity again as brothers and sisters with our one true Father, and that is God. This action of Jesus on the cross when he connects with his mother and brings her and John together uh, and what he does and achieves in his death and resurrection, all of this is designed to, to tell us one central theme that becomes really a core part of what the Christian faith has been about ever since, and it's this. No one should be without family. That's everything that Jesus is doing in this moment. He's saying the reason why I'm sacrificing my life, the reason why I'm shedding my blood is so that anybody who has ever been separated or anybody who's ever been broken, that no one is without the chance of being a part of a family. The Christian faith is the most beautiful, the most diverse, the most welcoming and inclusive family that has ever been created. And it was created in that moment as Jesus brings his mother and John together and sheds his blood on the cross. And if you think about it, I don't think there's a, a better thought for us right now in the season that we're in with this virus than that thought, that no one needs to be without family right now. I wanna encourage you actually just to reflect on this in a couple of ways. First of all, reflect about the importance of this for us all as we're practicing social distancing right now. And I know many of you, whether you're in Hong Kong or watching this from overseas, uh, you're either in lockdown right now or you're spending a lot of time in your home. And, and I think there's actually a gift that God is giving us in this season. He's giving us the gift of being able to reconnect with our biological families again. Uh, and I don't know about you, but in my own biological family, there are those great ups and downs. And some of us have amazing biological family backgrounds. And others of us, to be honest, the biological family is something that's been really difficult. Whatever it's been for you, I think we're all in the world right now being afforded a gift. And that gift is to reach out and to reconnect with those that we are living with, with our biological families, those that mean the most to us. I've been spending a lot of time with my wife and my daughter in this season as we've been staying at home a lot in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and I have to say that's been incredibly rich. It's been a beautiful thing. I think this is a gift. Uh, to the globe right now and to humanity, that we might be able to reach out and repair some of the things that are broken within our biological families, and in so doing, begin to live out the spirit of what the cross is actually all about. So that's the first thing I want to encourage us to do. But, but here's the second thing. I, I recognize that there is such uh, brokenness in the biological family at times, and so this is also a chance for us to continue to be that spiritual family to one another, to be able to be the hands and feet of, of Jesus to each other, to be able to reach out in love and compassion, to, to, to send that email, to make that phone call, to, to try to connect on Facebook or, or WhatsApp or through Zoom or however it is that you might be able to connect with the brothers and sisters around you. I had this incredible moment this week of connecting with uh, one of our Vine congregation members who's on the front lines of the fight against this virus right now. She's a doctor uh, working in the city. And uh, we were able to, to connect and just share some, some stories about what she's going through. And one of the things that she said is, you know, there's a lot of fear in us as we come into work every day as we're battling this virus in the hospital context. And we're exposed ourselves to the virus uh, in a dangerous way every day. 
But she said, one of the things that greatly encourages me is she knows that she's not alone, that right now that she's being prayed for, cared for, supported uh, by those in her spiritual family. And that brings her great comfort to be able to go into work every day and do the thing that she needs to do. And so here's the thing I want to encourage us as we reflect on family together today. There are people in our spiritual family that really need our prayers right now. Those that are on the front lines of this virus battle. Those that are actually sick perhaps amongst us. Those that we know uh, in our wider families around the world that are sick or, or fearful or anxious. I think there's a powerful opportunity right now to be the very family that Christ established with Mary and John in that moment and to reach out towards one another in prayer, uh, in communication, uh, in, in sharing scripture together, in the many ways that we can do that to say you are not alone. No one is without family in this time and we are here for you. That's the way that we can be church in all that we are facing right now. And I want to encourage us all, whether it's our biological families or our broader spiritual family, that we reach out and connect and show Jesus to one another in this season. When I think back to that moment of being gathered uh, around the bed with my father, uh, one of the things that I celebrate the most is the diversity of our family in that moment. In the Gardner family, there were uh, English people, Kiwis, Chinese, Nepalese, Indonesian. Uh, I think one of the greatest legacies my father has left me is the fact that he didn't define family simply by bloodline. But for him, family was always much broader than that. My dad was a banker for all his life.